You are listening to Overcomers Church International Podcast. Here at OCI, we are dedicated to our vision of building strong people and building strong churches. From wherever you are listening, we hope that this message leaves you equipped and encouraged. So I've got a lot to share with you. However, um, I might share some other things. Well, I'm going to, and we'll just see what the Lord does. Uh, you know, I love worshiping the Lord. I believe it's, I've heard some people say we were designed to worship him. Uh, I'm okay with that. I think we were designed to be loved by God. Uh, I like that the best. But in the process of relating to him and just discovering who he is and revealing who he is, worship is part of is part of what we're called to. And we're called to do that. And you know, the enemy perverts things. He doesn't create anything. He only perverts what what God has created. And how many of y'all know I've heard of the the band The Grateful Dead? Probably anyone with with gray hairs. Who's not heard of the band Grateful Dead? Okay, well, you guys are not good at raising hands. Okay, so I don't really know what to say. Uh, before I do that, I wanted to, I'll be back to that in a minute. I just want to take an opportunity. I did this this morning and just uh, honor Ron. It's his birthday today. And uh, he is 36 backwards, I think is what it is. And, you know, uh, I just, you know, I don't, I always try to honor people. I don't always call out birthdays, but um, I just want to take a moment. I did this morning just to honor uh, you know, when somebody has been with you and stood by your side for uh, a lot of years, uh, that's that's worth noting. And he's never asked for anything. He's never wanted the spotlight. He's never wanted a front row seat. You know, anybody can sit up here, by the way. But uh, he he's never wanted anything except for just to do what God's called him to do. And uh, he and Wendy have just essentially just devoted their lives to uh, to serving Liz and I and serving this work and what God's doing. And uh, you can't find that everywhere you go. I'm telling you, we sometimes we, Liz and I pinch ourselves looking at, and we have that with more people, but um, they've just been with us for a long time, and we just, we really honor that. Uh, when we were at the minister, I'm sorry, the pastor's retreat back in June with these pastors and Joseph and Heather Z were there, and <clears throat> there's this this guy there named uh, named Ben, and Joseph and I were, were, we were making reference to this other pastor and his wife, Ben and Kara, and uh, he said, Ben doesn't have what you have. And I said, what, what do you mean? Because they have a really awesome church. And I said, what do you mean? He said, he doesn't have a prophet run. I don't know if I told you that, but those were the words that he spoke to me. And that just just all the more instilled in me what it is to have people that will stand with you. And, and we have that with with many of you, but thank you for standing uh, with us all of these years. And so um, he's got a goal to live till he's uh, 120. Um, I don't care to live quite that long. So um, we just figure we'll just go about the same time, amen, because he's a few years older than me. So praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Uh, so thank you, Jesus. Um, but God's good, isn't he? So, yes, yeah, so the Grateful Dead. Uh, I heard this uh, years ago, and this this always stuck with me. There were, I think, five original band members. I've never heard a Grateful Dead song in my life, so I don't, I don't really know. I don't, but uh, I've heard of the Grateful Dead. And by the way, if you 
don't know Jesus, you will not be the grateful dead. If you do know Jesus, you will be the grateful when you die. Uh, but the Grateful Dead, uh, that just came to me, uh, the Grateful Dead had, I believe it was five band members. And what would happen is that whenever they would start playing, this is what they testified, is that when they would start playing, that there was a sixth man that would show up. Now, how many of y'all know that they weren't worshiping Jesus with their, <laughs> with their music? And what happened is that a demonic entity would show up in their presence and begin to play music with them. And this is, this is what I've, I've heard. I've heard this testimony. And uh, so, you know, I was thinking, when I was thinking about that, I thought, well, that's basically what the Lord does with the people whenever we worship him. Because it says that he inhabits, he makes his dwelling place in the praises of his people. And so what the enemy does is he just perverts stuff. And, you know, there's all kinds of, you know, demonic music and stuff. And I've heard it put like this concerning Lucifer. It wasn't just that he played music. It's like he was music. And when you read about him in Ezekiel, um, there was a, there were some descriptive words there about him being in the garden that he, he, music comes from him. And this is why music is such a powerful thing. And I'm not wanting to get off on music, but there's a lot of really good sounding music, but, but rotten lyrics um, and a lot of stuff behind it that's not really good. And all it is is a perversion. And when you go to these concerts and things where you have, and, I, and I'm fine with like Christian concerts and stuff and having fun, and that's fine. But when you go to like secular concerts, uh, there's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes that people don't even realize that is going into the music that's being demonically inspired to draw people away from the heart of God. And even though Lucifer... Um, is a musician, and he's a he is a uh, used to be a worship worshiper, but worship. I mean, music is still in him. Um, he the music came from God originally because God made Lucifer, Amen. And so God is the designer of music, and so we have this ability to be able to take what God designed and give it back to Him in the form of praise and worship and adoration. And this is what I've found. This is what I've found is that if you can number the number of people in the room, and you just worship the Lord long enough, all of a sudden, they, let's say there's 35 people in this room, the 36th man all of a sudden just kind of shows up on the scene. He designed it that way. He made it that way. The enemy's perverted stuff, but there's something about when the saints come together and worship that God will just show up and begin to, to, to speak and to minister. Sometimes it's, it's more tangible than others, but God's always there in our midst. Hallelujah. Amen. And, uh, you know, I was just really uh, awestruck with things going on about the, the love of God. The Lord had been speaking to me real strong during worship about, about love. And then we sang a song about uh, his banner being over us in love. And Katie shared what, what she did. I think you shared something, too, about love. And the Lord had already been ministering some things concerning that to me. And I want to read this passage to you out of Revelation uh, this is exciting to read out of Revelation because you don't get a lot of messages preached past Revelation chapter 3. So we're going to go to Revelation chapter 4. I want to read this little passage here to you and, and show you something that the Lord showed me. And I love reading things that are, you know, there's a lot of things in the Word that are geared uh, to help us with everyday life. And I like that. And from a pastoral perspective, it, that's a lot of what ministry is, is helping people live in victory and walk out, 
you know, what God's called us to and help people find out how God's made them. But then you have passages and things in the word that when you read it, it's like, you know, there's a lot more going on in the spirit than what we're really aware of. 99% of the time, we are really not aware of what's what's going on and the fact that there's there's way more. The Apostle Paul, and in my estimation, Paul and John, probably as far as people on the earth, probably had more revelation about things in the spirit, probably than two other people outside of Jesus that ever lived. I also think probably that might have been true of Elijah and maybe Enoch. But as far as New Testament guys, Paul and John had great revelation. Paul said, he said that he he witnessed things. And um, I think it said that he heard things that he, it wasn't even lawful for him to utter. And it's not because they were were bad necessarily, but it was, I think it was beyond even the comprehension of being brought into natural language for people to even be able to grab a hold of. But John, and I think that that's why when you look at the book of Revelation, who in here has ever read Revelation and you're like, what the heck did I just read? I mean, most of it, it's all this picture form and just, you know, it's like, what are you talking about here? But at the same time, you can see that John really did see something. He was caught up into into another realm. He was caught up into the third heaven and God showed him things and he was able to have his eyes opened up to realities. And so I want to show you something here. And this is Revelation chapter four and verse one. And we're just going to read a few verses here, uh, like 10, uh, which is uh, a few times about three. So verse one, it says, after these things, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, the first first voice he heard was like a trumpet. I've heard a lot of people talk. I've never heard anybody that sounded like a trumpet. I mean, just come on. Anyways, all right. And it said, it was saying, come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. Now, this is just so we're clear. This is talking about God being seated on the throne, because in the, in the next chapter, moving in the next chapter, it talks about the one that arose from the midst of the throne, which was the Lamb of God, and he was the one found worthy to open the scrolls. So this is specifically referring to God the Father. And it says in verse 3, and he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardis stone in appearance, which I don't know even what that means because I don't know what either one of those look like. But there you go. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and back. Now here's where I want you to pay attention. Notice they had eyes in front and in back. So they were essentially covered in eyes. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature, like a calf. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was uh, like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. 
And they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Man, that's pretty, that's awesome. I just read the whole chapter, I didn't realize that. That's awesome. And I was, and I, I believe that this is this is God. Some could say it's Jesus, but whatever, it's it's definitely the Lord. And I believe that there is a reason. All, all scripture is written with purpose. There's not anything that's written without purpose. And so it's very strange to us, the idea of having uh, creatures <laughs> that apparently can't be described too well other than one looked like a lion, one looked like a, an eagle, a man, and, and whatever the other one was, an ox or something. And then they had eyes all around them. And so I was reading this one day, and I was like, Lord, what's up with that? <laughs> Sometimes it's good just to ask the Lord and be like, what are you talking? Why am I reading this? Why was this written from, uh, for me to read? And he began to speak to me about what the eyes represented. And the way that I see this is that they were... They were, in fact, it says that they, they were around the throne. They were before the throne, and they were around the throne. And if you could imagine the throne of God, and then you have these elders, and you have these creatures that were around the throne, and they were covered with eyes. And here's what I believe. The, the Bible tells us that God is love. If you want to know what, God, what love is, just look at God, and you'll see what, what love is. God is love. They are equal to each other. And the Bible also talks about that there are measurements to God's love. There is height and breadth and length and depth. I think I named the four that are listed in Ephesians chapter 3. And this is the, the conclusion that I've come to because God is eternal and love is God. That means that love is eternal. And I do not believe that love can ever be fully measured because it is eternal. I think that you can measure it in the sense of what you know or understand or have revelation of, but what we have revelation of is not the fullness of what God's love is because it's eternal, and our minds at this point in our life don't have the capacity to fully grasp the fullness of what God's love is. And so I believe that these creatures... Even these creatures, because they were created by God, that these creatures were around the throne and they had eyes all around them because every time they encircled the throne, this is what I believe, every time they encircled the throne, they saw a new dimension, a new measurement, an extended measurement, an extended dimension of God's love that they had never seen before. And it caused them to begin to worship the Lord. And then in response, the, the elders, the 24 elders that were there saw these creatures, these living creatures worshiping the Lord because they saw something and they had all of these eyes so they couldn't possibly miss what was going on. As a matter of fact, they could see this new dimension of God's love and they could see it from every conceivable angle. But because he's eternal, eternal 
He's always constantly being unfolded in new ways and new measures than we haven't seen before. And whenever that happens, the 24 elders respond, and they lay their crowns down, and they worship him all over again. Which to me doesn't make sense. They should have just stayed down because it says that the, 20, the, the creatures just continually said this. Now, that's, that's my opinion or how I see that verse, but I believe that that's why they had all, and so those, those eyes all around them. And so you say, why are you saying this? It's because our pursuit in this life should be to know God's love better and better and better and better. If anybody ever thinks, like, I really have got God's love figured out, you probably know the least about God's love. <laughs> because this is what I've come to find out. The more I know, the less I know. You know, it's just like you, you see a new dimension or a new understanding. You're like, God, I've never seen that before. Let me give you an example of this. And then I'm going to work right into my main message for the remainder of the time. Um, because these actually do really do fit together. I had, and I, and I shared this, uh, I was with a group last night and I shared this. And I was just being transparent that the Lord began to show me something. And I've, I've mentioned this briefly, but he began to show me something a while back. And that was about his, his approval. And see, I've, I've known the truth that God has loved me and it does love me. I've known that for a lot of years and I've had experiences. I've had revelation. It's just continued to unfold. And it was almost like I've had certain dimensions or certain measures of God's love. But then about, I'm going to say it was about three months ago for, I believe it was three weeks in a row on Sunday morning when I was driving from my house to church, which is about an 11 minute drive. And as I was driving, for no reason, I was just minding my own business. Not really, I was minding God's business, but I wasn't really asking for anything. And I began to, when I was, would drive, I'd just put on worship music or, or whatever. And, um, and every morning, for, for three mornings in a row, this is the only way I could explain it, is that I began to feel the approval of God, which is tied to his love. And see, I, I already knew that God loved me. Like somebody could come up and say, hey, did you know that God loves you? And I'd say, yes. I mean, I don't fully understand it, but I do know that he loves me. In fact, it's changed my whole entire life. But this was different. This was to a point to where, uh, I don't know if you've ever been around somebody before that you knew that they, they just approved of you. I, I don't know how to explain that any different. But I've been around a few people that when you're, you're in their presence, you can't help but to feel that they approve of you. Now, I know two people, I'll say, that are the best example of this, best living example. Neither one of them uh, are here tonight. One of them's in the Perryville Church, and the other one is our friend uh, Aubrey, who lives in, in Florida. And Sherwin and Aubrey, when you are in their presence, you feel they're the best. And now I'm thinking uh, Artie also is actually a pretty good example of this. Uh, but I've just been using Aubrey and Sherwin for quite a while as examples, even though Sherwin doesn't like me to say it. But anyways, but you, you get that kind of person when you get around them, you can't, you can't help but to realize that they approve of you. And when you have that, it makes you really want to be around that person. And when I was driving with the Lord, and it wasn't that I didn't want to be with God, but I just wanted to be with him a lot more. It was like, 
it was like, I, I've known that I haven't had to, and I'm, I'm looking for words to describe this. I've known for a really good while that I haven't, I haven't had to do anything for God to love me, accept me. I don't have a performance-based relationship with the Lord. It's, it's just by grace and by love. But I came to this other level, and I've probably, all I did was just open up the, the new type of measuring device is all I did. And now, for, from now and throughout eternity, I'm going to have greater levels of understanding of God's approval of me. You know what I'm saying? And so, but now when I go into the presence of the Lord, it's not just, can't I love you unconditionally, but it's I approve of you. It's like every time I go into the presence of God, he gives me back my paper that I probably really got an F on, but he went ahead and gave me an A plus anyways. You know, it's just like, it's like, it's like that feeling. And so God is just, he's so incredible. I want to tell you how that came, how all of that came about. And then I'm going to get into ministering a few things for the remainder of the time that we have. And it really, that experience, and I could go through all kinds of experiences, encounters with the Lord, and see, he's, he's, the, he's not in the fire. I mean, he can be in the fire, he can be in the wind, and he can be in all of the, the stuff, but he really delights in speaking in this still, small voice, and us encountering and hearing that, that still, small voice, and it's like, when we'll listen, then we'll really get the experience that goes with it, is usually how it, how it goes for me, and but where, where those experiences have happened in my life, and I'm just speaking from me, where they've happened in my life has been coming to this place of really being a living sacrifice. And that's what we've been talking about for the last, and I haven't ministered in, in a few weeks because we've heard from, from Lee and Katie and, and Liz. And so this is my turn, and we're going to finish up talking about being a living sacrifice. But the result of being a living sacrifice is that you get to experience God's best. And the tendency that people have with being a, a living sacrifice is that it's, um, it's often painful. Uh, and it, I used the word excruciating this morning. Then I had someone tell me that uh, the word excruciating is actually tied to the cross. And so our picture of being a living sacrifice, in a sense, is the picture of Jesus on the cross. It's an intentional, thought-out I'm going to put myself in a place of being a sacrifice so the benefit can come from it. You remember it says that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. So for us, we have to get to a place to where we're willing to endure putting ourselves on the altar and being the sacrifice so that God can do in us what he wants to do in us. A lot of times people are saying, God, use me. God, use me. I've been in prayer meetings. And I've been one of those people in the prayer meeting saying, God, just use me. God, just use me. And then I would go walk out of that prayer meeting, walk out of that time with the Lord, and not really give a whole much more thought about the Lord. And so what I was doing is I was doing an action, and I might have had some good words that were there, but I didn't have a life that backed up the place where I belong so that God could use me. Because if you're not on the altar... You know, here's, here's a question to ask yourself. If I am not on the altar, where am I? And being a living sacrifice, it's not about how you live. It's about where you live. Because if you're in the right place, how you're living is a byproduct. So let me say it again. It's not about how you live. I mean, how you live is important. How we live is very, very important. But the stuff that needs to be burnt off or be dealt with or, or be handled 
will be handled if we're on the altar. You could say it like this. They can't be handled if we're not on the altar. So just coming to a place where we say, Lord, I'm going to come to this place to where it is the total end of me. It's the total end of self, and my life truly belongs to you. And what that is really, it's a one-time decision, but it's a continual act. It's a one-time decision, but it's a continual act. It's something we have to continue doing for the rest of our life. And that's the deal, is that it's really easy to become a sacrifice. It's really difficult to remain one. Because it's what it's called, and this is in Romans chapter 12, and we'll probably go there in verse 1. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. So a, a living sacrifice, and I did this, this study because I'm like, there's something deep about what, what's a living sacrifice because a sacrifice is alive when you bring it, but then after, after it's been sacrificed, then it becomes dead. So I'm like, Lord, what's a living sacrifice? I did all these, this study and I went through all these commentaries and stuff, and basically I came to the conclusion that a living sacrifice is a sacrifice that just lives every day as a sacrifice. It, wasn't, it really was not very deep at all. I'm like, oh, well, I can understand that. So it's easy to, to start and put yourself on the, relatively easy, I'll say, to put yourself on the altar. What's difficult is to remain on the altar. That's the challenging part. And this is not a heaven or a hell issue. That's not what I'm talking about here. This is, and, and this, I've said this before, that this is a whether you live heavenish or you live hellish issue. I thought that deserved it. Thank you. If I'm, if I'm searching, I'm looking for some agreement. This is a, not an issue of like whether you're going to go to heaven or hell. It's an issue of whether you're going to have God's best or not while you're here on this earth. God wants the best for everybody. But where we find God's best is coming to a place where we're at the end of ourselves. It really is the beginning of him. And what we do is we start that and then we continue that process every single day. Because on the altar is the place of meeting with the Lord. And when we're on the altar, the deal is the Lord is so amazing. He's able to deal with the thing. He's able to destroy the thing that's destroying us without destroying us. If we try to deal with the thing, usually, if we try to deal with the thing that's destroying us in our own strength, sometimes we might destroy the thing that's destroying us, but we'll also destroy ourselves in the process. And that usually comes in the form of shame, condemnation, things like that. But when we place ourselves on the altar, and another way you could look at it is it's, it's the, the mercy of grace, the mercy seat of grace. It says that now we have boldness to enter into the throne of grace, to receive grace and mercy in our time of need. That grace and mercy isn't what we give to us. It's what God gives to us. So when we go on the altar, and the deal is, is that everybody's got flesh, you have physical flesh, your physical body. Everybody just pinched themselves just in case anyone is just a little confused and you think that you're an angel or something. You're, you're not an angel. You know what drives me crazy is when I'm at a funeral and people are like, well, heaven's received another angel. I'm like, yeah, no, heaven didn't receive another angel. If they're born again, then heaven received one of the redeemed ones. If they weren't, then they're not in heaven. But anyways, hallelujah, you're not an angel is my point, right? Uh, and so you've got flesh. And inside the realm of your soul, your mind, your will, your emotions and conscience, we also have flesh. And we know this to be true because the Bible says that you can be carnally minded. And carnality means of the flesh. So you can have uh, flesh or carnality in your physical form, but also in the, in the way that you think, those kind of things. 
And so we have to come to this place to where we allow the Lord to deal with those areas. But it's so amazing because the Lord can deal with those areas and he can burn off the stuff that, that doesn't need to be there, but we get saved in the process. That's an awesome thing. Because when it comes to, to being on the altar and being a living sacrifice, nothing is off the table for God. If you're really, truly a living sacrifice, nothing's off the table, which that, that could sound scary. And there was a point in my life to where I, I operated in a lot of self-preservation, and the self-preservation kept me from, especially with those closest around me, from saying, I'm dealing with this. I need help. The Bible says that we're supposed to pray for one another, that we be healed, and, for, and that we, uh, people receive forgiveness, all of that. Well, you can't do that unless you're willing to open up and share and have people bring healing to you. But I had self-preservation not only amongst people, but also before God. Self-preservation before the Lord doesn't even make any sense. He already knows it all anyways. Someone who's operating in self-preservation really doesn't know the ability of God and the love of God. Because God's ability is able to deal with a thing that's been dealing with us. And because of his love, he's able to deal with the thing without it destroying us. And so when we just come and we put ourselves on the altar and say, God, I've got this problem. I have this issue. I have this thing that's ruining and ruling my life. I want it dealt with. And I'm going to stay here until we see this thing taken care of. And you know, sometimes the fire has to burn a little bit longer and hotter for some type of flesh than others, I suppose. But if you stay on there long enough, then the fire of God will deal with that thing. But the fire of God is, I can remember being in meetings. <laughs> Jesus, I can remember being in meetings. I'm thinking about a couple of them that Liz and I were in. And there was no explanation. The people were just running around going, fire, 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 fire. And I walked out going, I don't know what just happened, but, you know, that was a little different or whatever. And, um, but instead of it making me, we, me want to find out about the fire of God, it made me, like, I don't want to go back to a meeting like that because that's just, it's strange. So some explanation can go a long ways to help us, amen? And so, you know, the fire of God is a good thing because the fire of God, if you are not a believer, eventually it will not be a good thing. But if you are a believer, it's a really, really, really good thing. Unless you really just want to hang on to the thing that you know you need to lay before the Lord. But see, when you're really, truly a living, I mean, really a living sacrifice, there's not anything that's not touchable by the Lord. And here's the deal is that there's no condemnation with this. I've been, I've been at this for a long time. And I still find areas of thinking, and I would like to say that I could stand up here one day and say, folks, I have arrived. I, <laughs> I'm probably dead if I've said that. I'm dead. If I've said that, and honestly, and it's true that I'm, I'm dead. So you don't really ever get there, but you just keep, you keep working at it the rest of your life. And the less flesh you have, the less issues you have because you stayed on the altar, the more of God you'll experience in your life. And what religion does is it twists it and says, if you, if you want to have God's best, you got to live holy. And it puts this whole thing about you, like, you, you got to live holy. you got to live right. And if you do it, then God, ugh, he'll, he'll do it. As a matter of fact, I, played, I was playing golf, and this guy joined up with me. I was playing by myself. Uh, 
one day, a few days ago, and, uh, and he made a really good shot. It was one good shot he made. The rest weren't very good, but anyways. And <laughs> Jesus, to help me. He was struggling so bad with something that was so, I said, hey, can I give you a tip? He goes, nope. I said, okay. Anyways, forget all that. Okay. He needed to be on the altar and deal with that pride is what he needed to do. But he, he made this shot, and it was a good shot. I think it was a long putt or something like that. He goes, good, clean living, just like that. As if, like, I'm doing something good, now, now God's going to bless me. That's what you call a dead work. That's what you call religion. But the truth is, is that when somebody stays on the altar, when they stay at the place to where God can deal with them, God's best will happen in that place. And really, the way that I see it is is that when, and let's go and look at this a little bit more in the scriptures in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Let's, let me show you this really quickly. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. You all getting something out of this? So when somebody is, is on the, the altar, they're at that place, and, and their life is on the altar, the fire of God gets rid of the things that don't belong, but it refines what does belong. And let's start in verse 10. Let me read just a few verses here. It says, according to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I've laid the foundation and another built on it. Let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will, be, will become clear. For the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it, of what sort it is. Now, some people would look at this and, and you, could, you could think that the fire of God is going to consume you. That's not what it's talking about. This is talking about the fire of God is going to consume, potentially consume the work that you did and what you built your house with, what you built your life with, that it's going to consume you, but it's really talking about consuming the materials you use. In verse 14, it says, if anyone's work which he has built on endures, he will receive a reward. Just so you know, uh, Everything comes to us by grace, yet at the same time, when it comes in heaven, I heard it said like this, that not everybody's going to have a front row seat in heaven. And I don't know that that's the right way to say it, but the point is, is that there are rewards for things that we do here in this life. Many verses depict that. Verse 15, if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. Now, I believe that this, because this is talking about a day, I believe this is probably, could be referring to the Bema seat of Christ where the things that we did here on the earth get, get judged. Now, we're not talking about us being judged for heaven or hell, uh, but we're talking about what we did, and I think it could be referring to that. But I can tell you now, if you will get on the altar with the Lord now, he will judge what you're doing now. And when I say judge, I mean it's, it's a good thing. He will determine what you're doing now as being from him or not being from him, being of him or not being of him, being of you building your kingdom or being of him building his kingdom. But look at this. This is where this is where the comfort comes in. It says, uh, "If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire." That's a good thing, amen. And you know, it says that you'll you'll suffer loss here, 
And again, I really believe you can be on the altar and you can experience the fire. I know because I've, I've done it and I, and I work to live there. You can experience the fire of God that will burn up things that are not of God. And then when the, the fire goes out, I guess if you want to say it, or everything's been consumed, what's left is the things that God has there. And then what happens like with gold, for example, is that it gets refined in the fire. But it says here that the person, although they'll be saved, they will suffer loss. And this is the thing that keeps people off of the altar, is they're afraid of what they're going to lose. I've talked about this with people being a living sacrifice. I mean, I've had probably hundreds or thousands of conversations about this. And I will usually have them with people that really need to become a living sacrifice and develop that mentality and there's always something in their response to me that depicts that they, they don't want to do that because they don't want to have to give things up. And that's just the, the deception of the enemy. Because the Bible tells us in Luke chapter 9, as a matter of fact, let's pull this up there real quick. Luke chapter 9, and I think it's verses 23 and 24. It says, then he said, this is speaking of Jesus, he said to them, said to them all. So this is for everybody. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. There's a lot in that verse. Maybe I'll come back to it, but let's look at verse 24. It says, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. It's a deception from the enemy for anybody to, to take their stuff, their ideas, their ways build their life on it, and think that they have accomplished something. Anything that we build outside of God, at some point, be it here on the earth or be it in the day when the fire is lit on all of our works, at some day, everything that's done outside of God will be consumed and loss will, loss will happen because you'll watch your life's work go up in smoke. I would rather have that here and see things that I've been doing that haven't been accurate, then I can turn and go, you know what, God? I've been doing that thing wrong. I'm going to change how I'm doing things. It's, I would say it's a combination of pride and deception that would keep people from allowing that to happen in their life. Because common sense will tell you, this verse says, it says that if whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. If we want to have real life, we have to get to the point to where we lose our life. There's a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof is death, is what it says in Proverbs. There's a way that it seems right. There's a lot of stuff that we can do that seems right, but it's not right because it's not of God. It's just of human wisdom. It's of human ability. It's the way people think. It's the way that your mama raised you. I think I told the story before, but I was working in this lady's house one time, and um, she found out I was, a, I was a pastor. This is when I was bivocational, and it was one of the, probably one of the latter jobs that I did, and um, the, 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 long, the closer I got to quitting business, the bolder I got because I didn't really care about aggravating people too much. I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm getting bolder with the gospel here. But anyways, um, I was talking to this, this lady, and uh, she, she found out I was a minister just from conversation, and she was asking about our church and denomination and blah, blah, blah. And then she was telling me what denomination she was a part of. And she said, 
uh, I would love to do something different where there's, I forget what she said, where there's life there or understanding, whatever words that she used. I said, well, just go somewhere different then where you can get fed. She goes, oh, oh, no, oh, no. My, my mother or grandmother, whatever she said, my mother, she would just, she just wouldn't have that. And I was like, well, you know, and then I come to find out that her mom was dead. I said, lady, if your mom's gone, what does it matter? You need to do something that's going to help and benefit your life now. And there could have been a mixture of things that were in there, but part of it's just pride. And it's like, my gosh, how deceived can people be to think and even know that what they're doing is not the best thing, but they just keep on doing it because, well, by golly, that's what mama used to do. That's what daddy used to do. Or that's just the way that we've always done things. That's nonsense. We should be at a place to where everything in our life is able to be on the table and say, God, it doesn't matter. If everything I've been doing up to this point in my life is wrong, I want you to tell me, I want you to show me, I want it all to be burned up, and then I want you to tell me how to do things from this point forward. That's hard for people to do sometimes. But the truth is, is that according according to what we just read here, there's coming a day when that day will reveal of what sort of work was done in the materials that were used to build the work of your life. That's some strong language. I'm glad I didn't have to say it, but God said it. Go back to verse uh, 23, if we could. Verse 23, and it says, Then he said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The cross was an instrument of death. We take the cross and we use it. I think it's become very, uh, to me, I've told Liz this before. I'm like, if we ever have a building with a steeple, do we have a steeple in this building? I don't think we have a steeple in this building. If we ever put a steeple on this building or in any building that we do anywhere, I would rather have an empty tomb on the top of it, personally. I, I love the message of the cross. It's, it's all through the Bible. The cross, is, the cross is a good thing. But understand this that a lot of the things concerning the cross has become a religious ideology to people, and the, the true meaning of it is not really understood. Jesus said to them, this is what he was saying, because the cross in that day, it was a form of, how do you say it? Is it capital punishment or corporal punishment? I don't know how you say that, but to where they put people to death on it because of uh, what they did wrong politically or they murdered somebody or whatever, that was, that was their electric chair of the day. That was their lethal injection. If Jesus were alive today, he would say, if you want to uh, come after me, anyone who desires to come after me. So here he gives, he gives the, the, the answer to how to do this. And you could have a room full. If you had a room full of 1,000 believers, 10,000 believers, and if I were to stand up there and say, who in here wants to follow Jesus? Probably every hand in there would go up and say, I want to follow Jesus. And then if you said, okay, great, I'm going to give you the recipe for how to do that. Yeah, praise God. I could just imagine this is how it would be. And you go, all right, everybody, I need you to take up your lethal injection, and I need you to follow me. Because when he was saying to them, I need you to take up your cross, he was saying, I need you to take up the thing, and it represented in their day death. We look back on the cross, and we see the life that's in it because of what Christ did through the cross. And praise God for that. I don't mean to diminish anything, the idea of what the cross did. But to them, this was Jesus speaking before the cross. He was saying, if you want to find your life, you got to execute yourself every day. And this was a very unpopular message because there was times when he, had the, he would have the, the multitudes were there. And they were listening and he was preaching and 
And he was saying these things, and they didn't understand it, but yet they were drawn in. And then he would perform miracles. And then he would turn around and say things like, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you'll have no part of me. And I think they were a little bit confused, but I think at the, at the root of it is they really didn't want to have to give up their ideas. They didn't want to have to give up their life of what they thought things should be like, and they really didn't want to follow him. They did want to follow him, but they didn't really want to follow him. They wanted to follow him, but they really didn't want to give up anything that was required of them in order to follow him. To me, it's the exact same, it's the exact same thing today. And listen, I believe that there are people that they get saved, and I... I, I believe what the word says, that if you believe in your heart and you confess with your, you believe in your heart that uh, Jesus is Lord and confess with your mouth that God raised him from the, day, from the dead, you shall be saved. I believe that. I don't think you have to do anything else beyond believing and speaking and those things to be saved. I think it's as simple as that. But there is, a, there is another level of becoming a living sacrifice that goes beyond that to really see the life of Christ manifest in your life. Our, we are called to, to take on, we are supposed to bear the image of Christ. I, this is what I, I really truly believe, is that those early day disciples, that the reason that they turned the world upside down or right side up was because they really truly did bear the image of Christ. And I'm not trying to put us down or anything, but I am saying I think there's levels that we can go up to. We can, we can go higher. with As we go lower, we're going to go higher. And the term Christian or Christians, if you didn't know this, it's only mentioned in the Bible. I believe it's three times. And it wasn't used in a positive light. It was, it was kind of a derogatory thing. And they said, those Christians, and Christian means Christ-like. So they were saying, it's all those people that are acting like Christ. Those are the ones that we don't like, and they're preaching Jesus. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't like, oh, those blessed little Christians. They, they were saying those people are acting like that one, Jesus the Christ, and it was used in that sense, but they noticed that they were acting like Christ. And I'm going to tell you the key to it is that they did, at some point, they did what Jesus instructed them to do, which was to pick up their death stick to take up their cross. And of course, Jesus was using figurative language. He was saying, you need to die, and then you're going to find your life. Let me show you this in another place. We didn't even get to Romans 12, did we? I'm running out of time. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Let me show you this. Y'all hang with me a couple more minutes. Yes? Hallelujah. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And look here in verse uh, 8. And it says this, it says, we are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. <laughs> what a great perspective. I, and I'll just, I'll throw myself in, in, in this too. We, we can be some of the whiniest people and just, you know, perspe our perspective can be so goofy. I mean, we can get our... I don't know if this is right to say, but we can get our panties in a knot, I think is how I've heard it said before. Over what? These people were, were in fear of having their heads chopped off, of losing their family. I mean, just major stuff. And you can read other places where Paul wrote too, and he's like, uh, you know, basically he's just like, well, I'm just going to keep loving people and serving the church, and, you know, these things don't even really bother me, you know. 
It's a great perspective. But look what it says in here, and this is how they have that perspective. In verse 10, it says, always carrying about in the body. Now, let me show you this. We, you got to understand, we put commas, periods, and things like that. We put that in there so we can read it grammatically to, to help us make sense in the English language. But we put those in there. They weren't there in the original language. So it says, always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. I believe that we're missing a comma in there. This is what I believe it should say. Always carrying about in the body, comma, the dying of the Lord Jesus. Because that sounds kind of similar to presenting your body a living sacrifice, doesn't it? And it says that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our body. Now look at verse 11. It says, for we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifest, manifested in our flesh. So this is a, I think the word, I think the term is an oxymoron. I should have, like it's, or a paradox. I don't know what the right term is. Some, something along those lines. What is it? Somebody help me out. Is it a paradox? When you do this, this thing happens? I'm looking at you, Paul. I feel like you know the answer. You're, you're in college. You should know. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. You get what I'm saying. You do one thing and another thing happens. It seems like that if you would die, you would be dead, right? But he's saying if you die, you're going to find life. And he can't be talking about physical death here because if they experienced physical death, they would be physically dead and they would have not been able to experience any kind of life. But he says, for we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake. Everybody say always. So they were always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our mortal flesh. Now look here in verse 12. I love this. It says, so death is working in us, but life in you. Wow, what a perspective. Death is working in us, but life in you. To the measure of death that you operate in, you could say it like this is the measure of life that other people are going to experience. That's called leveling up. The measure of death that we are willing to go to the altar and come to is the measure of life that we're going to experience and other people are going to experience for us or because of us. Thank you, Jesus. Let me finish with these couple of things. Let's go to Romans 12 very quickly, and then we'll wrap it up right here. If you want to have something that you've never had, you're going to have to do something that you've never done. If you want to have something that you've never had, you're going to have to do something that you've never done. God, will you can live the rest of your life just saved, and man, God will love you. I'll love you. I'll try to like you. No, I'm just kidding. I'll, I'll love you and I'll, leave, I'll even like you. <laughs> You'll feel my approval, amen? Uh, but you won't, get, you won't get very far. And God wants us to get far. So look here in Romans 12. And I, I wish I could just, I wish we had two more hours. All right. Verse 1, let's read this real quickly. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. It's by God's mercy that he does this, that you, and that, by we, that we do this, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Who presents their bodies a living sacrifice? We do. That's right. You and I. Holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And the way that you can understand this, this word reasonable 
it's a reasonable thing to do because you've reasoned out why you would do it. It's a reasonable thing to do because you've reasoned out why you should do it. What are the reasons that we should present ourselves a living sacrifice? I'm going to give you two very quick reasons. There's, there's more, but I'm going to give you two quick reasons. One is, is the fact that Jesus is our example, and he is worthy of us to make ourselves a living sacrifice. If it didn't, if it didn't give us any benefit but blessed him, and it does bless him, and we say, God, our life is yours it's in your hands, and I'm gonna. I'm just gonna. It's gonna. I'm gonna remain here, not just parts of me, but the whole me. See, when you put your body on the altar, everything else comes with it. You notice that your spirit and your soul are inside your body. That's why the that's why the Bible says that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's kind of like outer courts, body, inner courts, uh, soul, most holy place, spirit, man. It's kind of how I see it. So when it's saying it's that, that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, I believe it's really your spirit, man, on the most inward part. But yet your spirit and your soul don't go anywhere except that your body goes there. So that's why it says put your body on the altar, and when that happens, your whole being, your whole person is there. And that honors God when we, te- when we say to him, my life belongs to you. In fact, it's dishonoring to the Lord. I'll just be honest. I think it's a slap in the face to God for people to get saved and then say, I got it, Lord. And there may not be intentional language there, but what kind of what kind of idea is it to realize that someone died? They gave up their entire life. They, you could say, I've heard it said like this, I like this. They bankrupted heaven. I mean, the most valuable thing in heaven is God. You can't be any more valuable than God. And God came to heaven in the form of Jesus and died and gave his life. He gave his life, even all the way to the end, the Garden of Gethsemane. I love that story where he said, he said, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup, this cup of death, pass before me. And because there was no other way, he said, if there isn't another way, I'm still willing. God, not my will. He said, ultimately, not my will, but your will be done. He knew what was getting ready. He knew what had already happened to him, and he knew what was getting ready to happen to him. And he experienced the most, and I've heard some people say this that seems smart, so we'll kind of go with it, that the death on the cross, still that there isn't anything more excruciating than somebody can go through. But you know that Jesus didn't just experience the death on the cross. He also experienced being tied to the whipping post. And praise God, that produced healing for our physical bodies and healing for other things as well. He was spit on. He was mocked. He had a crown of thorns shoved into his head. Not placed onto his head. I guarantee you it was shoved into his head and he bled. They plucked his beard out. I have a beard. It hurts when people pull on it. Kids, it's not adults. If an adult pulls on it, that's just strange. But, you know, like a, like a kid or something, right? And so he did all of, the, all of this, this stuff and he did it for us. Didn't even mention the nails in the hand, the, the, the nails in his hands and feet. He did it all for us. And then believers are like, oh, yes, Jesus, I need your salvation. They get saved and they really realize, like, I can't save myself. But then they go on living the rest of their life as if God is not even there present with them. I mean, can I be honest? It's a slap in the face to God. Are they saved? Yeah, because I believe that God's faithful to his word. And when we confess Jesus, we get saved. But what a slap in the face to God. 
He deserves everything we have. Even if it's not worth giving, he deserves it all anyways. Number one reason, it's reasonable to say, Jesus, my life is yours. And here's the number two reason, I'm just going to say this really quickly, is that it transforms us. It tra- we, we're called to be transformed into the image of Christ. While we're here on this earth, when you get born again, your spirit, man, is already changed. Just as Jesus is in this world, so are we. We're created righteous and holy. And if all of these things is true about our spirit, man, how many of all can uh, boldly confess that you've got some other transformation that needs to take place in your life before you are in the image of Christ? Amen. And it really isn't so much your physical body as it is the way you think, the way you believe, the way you talk, those kind of things. And so we're called to do that. And when we put ourselves, and the reason it's reasonable to put ourselves on the altar is that when we do that and we remain there, it transforms us. I don't think that there's an honest human being, if they're honest with themselves, that would say that they don't want to be transformed. People that are wealthy, that have money, and they're rich and famous, you know, the, the, like the suicide rate amongst a lot of like, the, you know, celebrities and, and a lot of wealthy people and stuff, it's, it's higher in many cases than it is just for the, the rest of us who aren't famous and maybe aren't a multimillionaire or a billionaire. They need transformed just as much as anybody. People need to be transformed. And if we're honest with ourselves, we could just come to this place where we say, God, I need you to transform me from the, from the inside out. You already did. You, had to start, you started the work. And Lord, your word says that he who is faithful, or excuse me, he, who's, who, who, he who began a good work, if I can get it out, is faithful to complete it. Does it say until the day of Christ? I believe is how it says it. Until the day of Christ. When is that? I, probably when Christ returns, which means that the, it's not complete until he returns. There is a work that needs to continue. How does God do that work? Because, I mean, I've met a few folk that got to the end of their life, and I'm not trying to be critical, but it really didn't look like the Lord did a whole lot of work on them from the time they got saved until they, they died. They were still stuck in the same habits. They were still yelling and screaming at their kids and their wife. They professed Jesus as Lord. As a matter of fact, my dad had uh, a, a friend that he was just loved this guy and was a friend to him for a lot of years, and this guy was, I'm not going to get into it. But anyways, he just didn't exemplify the life of Christ too well. And you could look at somebody like that, and he, you could talk to him about salvation. Man, that guy saw all kinds of people. He would pick up women in the bars, take them home, and then witness to them, and then they would leave them, rightfully so. And um, anyways, where was I going with that? But yeah, we need to continue to be transformed into the image of Christ. <laughs> Amen. So you can get saved and not change, but it's our job to keep ourselves on the altar and let God continue to change us. Amen. Hallelujah. If God is changing your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. If you would like to give or would like more information on how we are making a difference, visit overcomerschurchinternational.com. 